Folks, the people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory. Tonight, we're seeing all over this nation, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith, and tomorrow, bring a better day. Imagine things had gone a bit differently. What if Joe Biden had won the election? But that's it. No Georgia runoffs, no Senate majority, no American rescue plan, no long debates over budget reconciliation or the filibuster or voting rights. The gulf between that world and this one is almost too vast to fathom. But we came so, so close to living in it. What would Biden's presidency have looked like then? Well, for one thing, we probably wouldn't be talking about Biden's legislative legacy. With Congress gridlocked, Biden would have had to make more use of his executive powers. And Democrats would probably devote more resources to Trump accountability. The only part of the story that might have proceeded unchanged is in the sphere of foreign policy. That's where, for better and worse, the president's powers are greatest and least reviewable. And with much less news on the legislative front to absorb, we would have taken greater notice of some pretty big developments. Biden rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. He's begun the process of trying to salvage the deal to denuclearize Iran. His administration has set about exposing international corruption and hopes to establish a global minimum corporate tax, depriving multinational firms of the power to dodge civic responsibilities in the countries where they operate. Biden may even join a multilateral boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics in a global mass protest of the Uyghur genocide and other human rights abuses. Less auspiciously, Biden declined to sanction Mohammed bin Salman for ordering the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The administration rolled out new visa restrictions and some new sanctions for those close to the crown prince, but no punishment for the one person we now know was behind Khashoggi's murder. He ordered an airstrike in Syria and has slow walked a promised withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's going to be hard to meet the May 1 deadline. Just in terms of tactical reasons, it's hard to get those troops out. But it is not my intention to stay there for a long time. This only scratches the surface. But all of these developments and others fit into a larger story and a more abstract series of challenges. Can Biden restore America to a position of global leadership? Does he aspire to make that leadership a worthier thing than it has been historically? What does the world look like without it? Biden has talked a lot about the importance of conducting foreign policy on a multilateral basis. I'll be a president who will stand with our allies and friends and make it clear to our adversaries the days of cozying up to dictators is over. And I'll always stand for our values of human rights and dignity. I'll work in common purpose for a more secure, peaceful and prosperous world. But we're only a few weeks beyond the Trump presidency, and nothing is stopping Trump from running again. With that looming in the back of their minds, will other leaders partner with Biden? 
Or did their experience of the Trump years shake their faith in American commitment to allies, to Western democracy, to the very notion of representative government? My guest this week is Tommy Vitor. Before he was pod-saving America and the world, he served as a spokesman for President Obama's National Security Council. He's here to discuss whether American global leadership is salvageable, how Biden can save it, whether it's worth salvaging at all. I'm Brian Boyler. Welcome to Rubicon. Great to see you, man. You too, buddy. And I love the conversation with uh, with Perry Bacon in particular. Was that last week? Oh, yeah, that was last week. He's so smart. The kind of, the, the lack of certainty came through in a way that didn't, unlike some of the other writing about this. You know what I mean? Humil- humility. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you caught uh, a piece he wrote probably couple months ago, it yes. was all about that is like the the problem with, you know, certainty and trying to be a predictor in punditry, like a good analyst in politics starts with the assumption that you have no fucking clue what's going to happen and go from there. Um, but don't get the clicks that way, though. <laughs> yeah, you don't um, get the clicks. <laughs> all right. So um, I want to rewind a bit uh, by thinking back to the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you remember what you thought? the foreign policy stakes were, particularly, I guess, between Biden and Bernie Sanders? You know, God, it, it was so underemphasized that, yeah. that you know, it was more, the stakes were more narrow and specific on issues. You know, like the one that really jumps out uh, to me in my memory is the willingness to put pressure on the Israeli government over annexation of the West Bank. A whole bunch of candidates came out and said they would be willing to consider conditioning uh, aid to Israel if annexation occurred. Uh, I think Biden was unwilling to even suggest that they would consider sort of a carrot and stick approach that would involve conditioning. So I think that was something that stood out to me pretty clearly. Yeah. Well, so Biden wins the primary with, I guess you could say, a more conventional in D.C. terms anyway, view of global politics. And then we're in the general election. Um, What did you think of as the foreign policy stakes of that election? I mean, I thought the stakes of the general election were essentially like the continuation of U.S. democracy or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, 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 yeah. felt, it felt that fundamental just in terms of our commitment to our, our, our own values and our democracy here. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? Look, we have to stand with Hong Kong, but I'm also standing with President Xi. He's a friend of mine. He's an incredible guy. We have to stand- I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is... But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. We were sending the absolute wrong message to everyone around the world. And you were starting to see countries, you know, invade places that they might not have. They actually had pressure, uh, do things that were like crimes against humanity, like... Trump had basically stopped talking about human rights abroad, right? Like John Bolton, his former national security advisor, wrote in his book that Donald Trump told President Xi Jinping of China that building concentration camps for like a million plus Uyghurs and re-educating them, uh, which is the, you know, the sort of sanded down version of what's happening there. It's a cultural genocide. He told Xi Jinping that that was the right thing to do, right? So it's not just that like uh, human rights issues were underemphasized. So like that, those were the stakes to me. So it sounds like the proposition on the table is something like 
if Biden wins, he gets to pick up the pieces of a bunch of shattered alliances and a corrupted foreign policy and then have to convince the world that the U.S. hadn't sort of fundamentally changed despite everything Trump did. Whereas if Trump had won, you know, who knows where it would have ended, but we would have been further down the line of the U.S. forming a partnership um, among global autocracies um, in, and in rivalry with European democracies, which are kind of in their own fragile state. I think that's exactly right. I mean, listen, we are all accustomed to the post-World War II global world order where, you know, the UN has been uh, a key actor in a lot of, you know, debates and conflicts where NATO is a, a global line structure that we value and lean on uh, and, and see as critical to global security. We have all these alliances in Asia. And for some reason, Trump just slowly walked away from all of those alliances, right? I mean, he refused to recommit to Article 5, which is uh, the the provision in the, the NATO charter that says an attack on one country is an attack on all. Basically, you know, the, the fact the U.S. would come to the defense of a NATO country if attacked, which essentially just unravels the entire alliance. So, yeah, I mean, he basically was walking away from the, the key alliances that every president since World War II has leaned on, and he was oddly uh, a big fan of berating leaders of democracies, especially women, right? So, like, you could see that a lot of countries, whether we're talking Europe or Asia, were trying to figure out what a post-United States path might look like for themselves when they just, you know, couldn't depend on this anymore. I was kind of raised on a on a Sanders-esque critique of U.S. military hegemony. And I still hope that in my lifetime, someone with Sanders's doubts about the way U.S. wields its power in the world institutes a more humble, confident approach to uh, to U.S. global leadership. But I, I kind of think that in practice, what Trump showed is that the proposition on the table right now isn't whether America will be a, a big imperial power or not, but whether we'll use imperial power for the most base corrupt purposes, um, or whether at least some higher values will be driving things. And when you serve up that choice, a lot of the higher-minded critiques of U.S. foreign policy kind of drain away. Yeah, I mean, look, you and I kind of like came up in politics during the Iraq War or the run-up to the Iraq War, right? And I think, you know, when, when you look at the damage that conflict did to the region and to the entire world, it's hard not to uh, have a ton of sympathy for the leftist critique of U.S. hegemony and, and U.S. foreign policy. Or when you really dig into the things that the CIA was doing in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the coups we were fomenting and the dictators we were propping up, right? Like, I, I think I'm kind of like a Elizabeth Warren domestic policy brain and then more of a Bernie Sanders foreign policy brain, which might surprise people since I worked for Obama, who's, you know, called a neoliberal. But, you know, I, I think there are areas where the United States... Uh, has and will continue to provide indispensable leadership. For example, I think that if the U.S. is not out leading the charge on climate change, uh, we will not meet any of the targets we need to meet to prevent you know, the, the planet from melting. I think if the U.S. is not in front leading the charge on getting developing nations vaccines and improving vaccine equity, then no one will do it. So like, there is a clear role for the U.S. to play in the world. That doesn't have to be a militarized one, though, and I think that's kind of the key distinction. Yeah. So Biden talks a lot about foreign policy as a 
as a matter of relationships and like specifically about his own longstanding relationships with a lot of global leaders today. So as relieved as some of them might have been to, to see Biden win and to now have a familiar face back in charge in the U.S., do you have any sense of how rattled they were uh, by Trump and whether the experience of living through the Trump presidency is complicating Biden's efforts to work multilaterally with them? Like, are they suspicious? It's a great question. I've wondered it myself. I would imagine that there will be countries, there will be partners who feel sufficiently burned by the U.S. walking away from promises or or alliances that they'll rethink, like, forging ties that close. I'll be honest with you. I, I would be surprised if there are that many countries that feel that way. I mean, most countries understand that, like, U.S. political leadership changes uh, and and that, you know, our approach to foreign policy can change with it. I do suspect that there's a lot of relief among traditional allies and partners, you know, like countries like Australia, countries like, um, you know, uh, Germany, right, who, like, for no reason, Donald Trump just loved kicking around Angela Merkel, who has been the stalwart leader uh, uh, in Europe for, like, a decade or more. And so, like, I assume that set will be relieved. I think a lot of allies in, in Asia will be relieved. I kind of interpret everything we've talked about thus far to mean that Biden has a couple main overarching tasks. Um, One is convincing peer leaders um, that he specifically is a trustworthy partner with sound judgment. And the other is convincing them that U.S. democracy is healthy enough that while party rule may change in the U.S., we're not inexorably on a road to kleptocracy, and they can look ahead to the future with the U.S. without wondering if we're going to scrap alliances with democracies and forge them with Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple ways you could like quickly summarize, you know, maybe the Trump approach. Right? It was, it was capricious. One day he would just get mad and and tweet about something, and all of a sudden we'd be in a tariff war with China. I think countries like moving on from that. But you're you're right to flag this kleptocracy piece because I think some countries quickly figured out that uh, the, the way to his heart was was through his wallet and that they could offer personal favors and that would be kind of a new and exciting way for them to do business and get around uh, traditional hurdles that they, they dealt with when trying to negotiate with the U.S. All right. So then let's talk about what Biden has done so far uh, and to what extent they advance his goals and uh, to what extent they cut against him. It seems like the big faith-restoring steps he's taken are still works in progress. Like, he rejoined the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of took as a bit of a gimme. <laughs> yeah. um, but beyond that, he wants to reenter the Iran deal. He wants to reform the 2001 uh, military force authorization. Uh, he says he wants to withdraw from Afghanistan. And more recently, he's, uh, his administration, anyways, talked about reviving anti-corruption as a foreign policy goal. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of that list? And how hopeful are you that he'll accomplish those things? Yeah. Look, I agree with you that rejoining the Paris Climate Accords was both a gimme and also, I think, probably largely symbolic. Um, we need to uh, tighten down those targets if we're really going to prevent some of the most devastating consequences from climate change. That said, I mean, we went from having a president of the United States that rhetorically was to the right of 
the president of basically every other country uh, when it comes to climate change to to one that is actually committed to it and that is trying to sort of embed uh, climate change in all parts of the U.S. government and all policymaking. So I think, you know, ultimately, that's a really good thing. And there were some reports yesterday, Brian, that the the U.S. might be considering essentially like doubling the targets uh, for, for emissions reduction. Um, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true or not, but it's like a headline I saw leak out yesterday. Yeah, I saw that too. And I what made me excited about it is that the whole knock on Biden, if you want to call it a knock, is that he's setting goals he knows he can beat so that he can, you mm-hmm. know, take a victory lap. And it's like, if he's setting this goal and he beats it, we're going to be in much better shape than I thought we were going to be in. Yes, agreed. I mean, and obviously like, you know, setting goals that you can you can beat by just being competent and, and yeah. you know, having people who are like, good at logistics is very different than getting the entire world to switch from using fossil fuels. But I'm with you. Like, I want to see him set a big, ambitious target and do our best to meet it, right? I mean, like, what else, what what is government for if not that kind of, that kind of work? Okay. So what about the more like war and peace goals? There's the the Rand deal and the OMF in particular were like the big, big early ones, I think. Yeah. So look, there's finally some progress when it comes to the U.S. re-entering Uh, the JCPOA, the Iran deal. Hey, it's Brian, here to bring you a quick primer on the Iran deal before Tommy and I get into the details. JCPOA stands for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It's an agreement between the U.S., Iran, China, and other global powers that took effect during the Obama years to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. The U.S. initiated the deal and really led the charge to get Iran to sign it. So it was devastating when President Trump pulled out of it, seemingly just to settle scores with President Obama, while justifying the decision with lies and propaganda. It essentially let Iran off the hook. And as you'd expect, Iran went right back to enriching uranium. Trump replaced the Iran deal with brutal sanctions on the country, which ultimately hurt everyday Iranians, not their leaders. President Biden wants to revive the Iran deal, But he can't just do that without acknowledging one way or another that we're the ones who blew it up in the first place. The deal can only survive in an environment of mutual concessions, which Trump and his loyalists will cite to try to weaken Biden politically at home while vowing to blow the deal up all over again if they get back into power. The challenge for Biden is all the usual suspects in Washington, D.C., all the, you know, Gulf country funded think tanks and right wingers like Tom Cotton and all these folks are making all the same arguments, which is that uh, the bill, the agreement is flawed. It doesn't do enough. It doesn't deal with the fact that, you know, Iran supports terrorism. It doesn't deal with Iran's human rights record, right? So they're trying to lard up the thing and make it so complicated that there's no way we can pass it. I was a little worried about uh, the the delay that you know the Biden folks had in terms of just getting back the talks with the Iranians, there's been this dance about sort of who goes first when it comes to reentering the deal. Like they, the Biden folks want to see uh, the Iranians stop certain enrichment activities. The Iranians say they want sanctions relief first. All the sanctions have to be removed. The United States must gain re-entry to the JCPOA. It's not automatic. It's not a revolving door. It seems like these talks that started this week in Vienna 
where the Europeans were an intermediary, it seems like they've maybe negotiated a framework to get both sides to move simultaneously, which would get us back into the deal. And then once you're back in the deal, once Iran isn't enriching more nuclear materials, uh, you can try to negotiate a follow-on agreement, or you can try to negotiate about some of the other other areas that the right-wingers want to talk about. But the key thing to know for all the listeners here is that like, the maximum pressure strategy that Trump put forward, where he just you know pulled out of the deal and tried to crush their economy with sanctions, hurt a lot of innocent people in Iran. And now Iran has more enriched nuclear material than they did when they were in the deal. So it was a just disastrous failure. So I'm glad to see Biden's finally moving forward and, and trying to get back into the thing. Part of the question about who goes first and how quickly you move is about domestic politics here in the US. Yeah. But there are domestic political considerations in Iran too. Like, as you mentioned to me the other day, that they have an election coming up later this year. How does that cut? Do you think that the uh, election looming there is something that should speed things along or is it an impediment to reestablishing the deal? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, look, this is just the question that we're all trying to figure out, which is President Rouhani is... Like, he's not a moderate in any way, but compared to some of the hardest hardliners in Iran, like the IRGC, the generals, right, he is he is more moderate than them. He's termed out. So there will be a new president elected in June. And the question is, who is that person? Do they support any talks with the U.S.? Does the whole country feel sufficiently burned by the U.S. pulling out of the JCPOA that they won't do business with us again, right? So that, to me, creates a bit of a time crunch uh, and a squeeze here where I'd like to see us just be back in the deal before those elections occur so that, you know, the easiest part of the problem at least feels managed. Coming up, we look at Biden's plan to stop corporations from cheating on their taxes by using overseas tax shelters. And we tackle the biggest challenge of all the rapid spread of autocracies around the world. Can Biden's style of democracy beat back that tide? When we return. Rubicon is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-first canned wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev's mission is rooted in taking charge of your choices and responsibilities and giving a voice to those who have been historically silenced. In a male-dominated industry, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. They offer five varietals, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, as well as a limited-edition extra-fizzy sparkling white wine. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy, super refreshing and delicious. They have zero sugar, only three carbs, and 100 calories per serving. Perfect for New Year's goals like cutting back on sugar or drinking. Bev makes it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine, perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, and their four-packs are great for gifting, hosting, and socially distant hangouts. Bev ships straight to your door, and shipping is always free. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash Rubicon. 
Rubicon is brought to you by Policy Genius. April means a lot of not so fun things getting fooled, getting rained on, and getting your taxes done. So if you need a positive experience to balance it all out, consider protecting your loved ones by getting a life insurance policy with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more on life insurance. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. And you can feel good knowing your family has financial protection. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance company, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. And the best part? All the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice, are totally free to use. Policy Genius can promise that you won't leave their website feeling like a fool. You could save 50% or more by comparing life insurance quote and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Rubicon is brought to you by the JFK 35 podcast. America has had many influential presidents, but few moved the country like John F. Kennedy. The 35th president inspired a generation of Americans to public service in ways that transformed America. And now you can learn more about that period in history with the Kennedy Library Foundation's podcast, JFK 35. This season's episodes look at the power of a president's words and the history of voting rights in America with our guest, Stacey Abrams. And if you've ever wondered how Ernest Hemingway's papers ended up at the Kennedy Library, listen to our episode featuring Lynn Novick as she talks about her new Hemingway documentary with Ken Burns coming out this spring on PBS. It's the JFK 35 podcast. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest is Crooked Media's Tommy Vitor. And we're talking about the steps taken by the Biden administration to right the ship on the global stage. One thing we haven't talked about yet is Biden's plan to clamp down on international corruption. He wants to tax big corporations that shelter their money overseas. And his administration is sanctioning foreign officials for corrupt practices. You know, if you look at someone like Vladimir Putin or, or Viktor Orban, these are autocratic leaders that are propped up in part by massive corruption, right? Like corruption becomes an anti-democratic force. So I think the thinking is if you can crack down on, on some of this global corruption, uh, you can you know, reduce the power of some of these leaders who are using money and, and using carve-outs and special favors for their friends to, to stay in charge. Um, you know, there's also, frankly, the legal corruption, right, which is uh, U.S. companies uh, inverting their corporate structures and pretending they, you know, exist in Ireland or whatever uh, to skirt taxes. And, you know, uh, Janet Yellen came out in, in favor of, of some steps to crack down that kind of activity. I'm glad they're putting this forward. It was something Bernie Sanders talked about a lot in the primary, which was great. I'm not exactly how sure how it will take shape, but I think it's an important plank. Is it doable, do you think? Like, if I, I, I've never been closer than a newspaper article to a global initiative like this, but negotiating a global corporate minimum tax sounds about as complicated an undertaking as anything I can think of, like, like Kyoto, but for taxes or something like that. 
I mean, look, man, that was my exact reaction, which was a uh, great idea, Janet Yellen. Uh, you're a hell of a lot smarter than me. Good luck with that. I have no idea how this <laughs> works. <laughs> uh, so on the other side of the coin, things that I think uh, a lot of people who want to root for Biden found disappointing were airstrikes he ordered in Syria. U.S. President Joe Biden ordered airstrikes on buildings used by Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria. The action was retaliation for the militia strikes in Iraq last week that wounded a U.S. Military. His response to the Khashoggi murder. President Biden chose not to punish Mohammed bin Salman. The administration rolled out new visa restrictions. And, you know, his general continuation of the status quo in the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. What was your view on those things and what what do allies how do they respond when they see the sort of continuation of how things were under Trump yeah i mean listen I, i'm glad that biden released the the intelligence report on jamal khashoggi's murder i'm glad we named the us name mohammed bin salman as being behind that disgusting attack on a journalist a dissident uh that said the fact that he wasn't punished was extremely disappointing. I think that, you know, we really do need to right-size our entire relationship with with Saudi Arabia. Part of that has started, you know, Biden said he was going to cut off support for offensive military operations in the civil war in Yemen. That's the Saudi-led coalition against the Houthi rebels. I'd, I'd like to see Biden be even more specific about what that means, because, you know, this is a conflict in Yemen that has led to just like humanitarian catastrophe. But, you know, I think, Stepping back, like Trump's entire Middle East approach was cozying up to sort of autocrats, right? In places like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, cutting deals with them. And it does seem like Biden is very quickly backing away from, from that approach. So that's good. By the time I left office as vice president, I had spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had. I spent hours upon hours with him, my interpreter and his, going into great detail. It's very, very straightforward. Doesn't have a Democratic with a small D bone in his body. He's one of the guys like Putin who thinks that autocracy is the wave of the future. Democracy can't function in an ever complex world. Biden seems fond of this sort of FDR-esque argument that his domestic success or failure will have big foreign policy implications because democracy is in such a fragile state internationally that if someone can't prove that it works to help people uh, then the world would just keep backsliding towards a more, you know, authoritarian or gangsterish mode of leadership. I predict to you, your children or grandchildren are going to be doing their doctoral thesis on issue of who succeeded, autocracy or democracy, because that is what is at stake. Not just with China. Look around the world. We're in the midst of a fourth industrial revolution of enormous consequence. Do you think he's right about that? Is that how tenuous the situation is in the world? Like, I, I think like I, you, you can trace back a lot of the problems we're seeing today from the global financial crisis. So if we can get the global economy cooking again, I, I do think that will help improve things generally. But, you know, I, like I'm, I'm wary of simple sounding rhetorical ties. I, I do think like this is a long game and there's a lot of complexity here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm sold on the, like the historical analysis that 
the New Deal was an important part of the ideological victory over communism and fascism, that it wasn't just that you had to crush the armies. You had to prove that, um, you know, instituting democratic governments around the world would be better for the people who lived in them. Um, and so I feel like in theory, you could end up in a situation like that again, where you have a rise of these nefarious forces around the world and you need to show that a better system works. Uh, but it's just unclear to me if you can draw a straight line between, you know, the uh, the American rescue plan passes, America has a glorious comeback and everyone says, hey, that's a, that's a better model than what we got going in Russia. It can't just be that Biden has to, you know, oversee a, a high level of GDP and uh, people in the United States feeling optimistic about the future, right? Like he needs to govern well, and then also he needs to be rewarded uh, with re-election or the Democratic Party needs to be rewarded with good election outcomes. Mm -hmm. So do you see consequences if the U United States, having just been through this sort of crisis of democracy, elects someone like Biden who's got real liberal democratic commitments, he governs well, um, but because the U.S. doesn't have a perfect democracy at all, you know, his party can't hold on to power despite governing well. So, like, is the question, okay, so in the next few months, year plus, the Republicans in a bunch of states pass voter suppression pills and they gerrymander the shit out of a bunch of districts and we lose the House in 2022. Does that have an impact on the state of global democracy? Yeah. I feel like that's a hard argument to make. You know what I mean? Like, I think we're, I, I think that there's probably a bunch of think tanks in, in D.C. that might think that way, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not sold on that. What about 2024 then? <laughs> Look, if Trump wins again, I think it, it's, it's the worst possible signal about, you know, where America is heading. So that makes me very nervous. Yes. You know, it, it, how important is Trump to that? equation, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Like, whether or not Biden wins in 2024, is there a difference between Trump coming back and winning re-election versus another Republican that is part of this very Trumpified party now? Or, you know, would a President Tom Cotton or something be salutary in some way and in, in not continuing Trump's more kleptocratic tendencies? It's a good question. I think it probably depends on the person. Like, I think that Trump is a singular uh, official in terms of his authoritarian tendencies, his brazen corruption, uh, his total disregard for human rights, his racism, right? I think that makes him like a singular danger in in our politics right now. That said, I mean, it's not like Tom Cotton being in charge is a good thing. It would just be bad for a whole, <laughs> bunch, of, whole bunch of different reasons, right? I mean, he'd be throwing more people in jail, invading more countries, like calling for us to attack Iran every day, right? Like, so there's a whole different set of disasters. Yeah. Okay, so it's a show about Biden's first 100 days. There's at least a few days left before the end of that. Um, what would you like to see him do uh, that you think would put him on the most promising course uh, to leaving the world in as good a shape as possible whenever his term ends? I think, like, getting back in the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, is a big one. I think that, you know, there's a conversation that started uh, about the forever wars 20 years into the Afghanistan war uh, about how the uh, the U.S. conducts counterterrorism missions, uh, where that's allowed, what Congress's role is in, in providing authority for those strikes. I think that's a big, challenging 
but important conversation that that's one of the most important things Biden is going to do. And that sort of encompasses some of the areas where progressives are frustrated, like um, the fact that we're not going to meet the May 1 deadline to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, like the serious strike that we saw a few months back uh, that that raised a lot of eyebrows. Right. So that's a that's a key critical thing that, you know, I just don't think they've had time to take on. So maybe just a little bit beyond the 100 days horizon, once you get the overwhelming majority of Americans vaccinated, we have surplus supply here that Biden has many good reasons to want to be at the forefront, like leading the global vaccination effort. Yeah, it's absolutely in our interest to get the whole world vaccinated. I mean, I read a story the other day that said Kenya was aiming to have 30% of its population vaccinated by, I think, mid-2023, which is just so far outside of the time ranges that it horrified me. And Kenya is like a big, bustling economy, right? I mean, they should be able to buy these doses. So I think the U.S. has to take a, a major role in making sure that all these countries can get access to vaccines. And I really think we can sell that argument to the American people who might not otherwise you know, care or, or support foreign assistance, right? You just have to tell them, hey, this virus is going to change and come back if we don't get everybody protected. Uh, and I think you know, the, the way you do that could involve the U.S. purchasing and distributing lots of doses and giving them to people. It could involve lifting intellectual property rights uh, on uh, vaccine manufacturing or treatments or testing and allowing other countries that have the capability to manufacture them themselves. And the good news is Biden just named a woman named Gail Smith, who used to run USAID, to, to lead this effort. She's dogged. She's great. I worked with her. Um, she'll she'll approach the job well but it's going to you know it's going to require americans getting past like traditional opposition to quote unquote foreign aid um we just have to be willing to help our our neighbors yeah i i i i take two things from that one one is that like you know the we've been so hungry for optimism in the news and yes. The, the the U.S. vaccination program being f- like finally firing on all cylinders and being like the model for the world is good and it feels good, but we should realize that the flip side of that coin is that that's because we have the supply and others don't. And, yes. you know, that was like a highly contingent thing that, um, you know, has questionable moral uh, aspects to it. And then separately, I think the implication is also – if we don't, someone's going to uh, sell or give vaccine doses to other countries, right? And that can mm-hmm. either be the United States or it can be one of the other countries that developed their own vaccine. And, you know, uh, between a, a soft power situation where the U.S. is giving tons of vaccine away versus China and or Russia, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and first, first and foremost— I am thrilled that the Russians developed a great vaccine. I'd like to see India, China, every single country develop mm-hmm. a great vaccine domestically. But you're absolutely right. It, like the Russians, the Chinese, they're they're viewing this as a diplomatic opportunity to get vaccines to other countries. We need to be doing the same. Because look at a country like Brazil. Brazil just had a day where 4,000 people died from COVID. 4,000 people. I mean, it is a catastrophe. The healthcare system is about to collapse. And – the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, is a guy who openly 
uh, pines for the day of Brazil being a military dictatorship. He just like fired a bunch of his senior generals. He fired his defense minister. Like you, you could see, uh, you know, a health disaster from COVID becoming a pretext to, you know, lock the country down, go into a state of emergency, right? Like there's a lot of horrible, horrible outcomes that could destabilize the entire region, the entire world. Not, you know, and I don't mean to like skip past the human suffering in Brazil right now. I mean, that's like the thing that we should be thinking about the most, but there are geopolitical implications. Brazil has porous borders with its neighbors. So infected people are going back and forth and it's hurting the countries in the region. So it's just like, we got to get our handle on a handle on this problem. And I think it has to be a focus that's paired with a really um, deliberate and loud messaging push to make sure that it's not something that's, that's demagogued by Fox News, right? Like, I guess I, I'm not entirely sure how Sean Hannity would uh, w- would demagogue this because, like, you know, all these guys are flirting with being anti-vaxxers anyway. And, you know, if you're an mm-hmm. anti-vaxxer, are you mad about us giving away your vaccine? I don't know anymore. <laughs> the place is I don't, too I don't fucked think up. they care, yeah. They're yeah, they're going to say what that, whatever. Yeah, they're just going to attack no matter what. But, like, you know... Like when, when when Obama came into office, you know, we spent the first several years cleaning up shit that Bush did. Uh, I do think that the U.S.'s utter failure on COVID, um, you know, requires a little cleanup, and, and we'll we'll see our we'll have to do a better job of trying to help everybody else get taken care of. Yeah, that's a good one to put a pin in. And I think I think the good news is that like Biden picked a really strong chief of staff for seeing that big picture. Yeah, I mean, look, it it is. <laughs> It is quite lucky for for the entire country, for the world, for Joe Biden, that Ron Klain was the guy who led the Ebola efforts in, in 2014. I mean, like he, someone who really gets the the nuts and bolts of pandemic response. Uh, you just can't uh, overstate how how great it is that you know someone with that kind of brain and that experience is in the Oval Office like several times a day. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Tommy Veter, thanks for coming on Rubicon. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a listener. Subscribe. Smash that subscribe <laughs> button. Tell your friends. Uh, give them a five-star review, please. Keep sending us your questions. Our email address is rubicon at crooked.com. Listener Brad writes, Assuming it becomes federal law, what parts of H.R. 1 would be most vulnerable to a potential SCOTUS fight? Would the law still be active in elections that take place during the legal battle? These are such important questions, and part of the reason they're so good is because they're so hard to answer. We know the Roberts Court conservatives have been profoundly hostile to voting rights, but they haven't been particularly principled or consistent in their actions, which makes it very hard to say which provisions of H.R. 1 they'd be most likely to invalidate or why. If I had to guess, I'd say I worry most about H.R. 1's independent redistricting provision campaign finance and disclosure reforms, and its provision to re-enfranchise people with felony records. The Roberts Court has been a handmaid to Republicans on similar issues in recent cases. And it's not hard, at all, to imagine five conservatives concocting arguments that Congress doesn't have the power to dictate to states how they draw their congressional lines, or how they determine who qualifies to vote, or that any regulation of political donations violates the First Amendment. As to whether these provisions would remain in effect through the judicial process, it's impossible to say for sure. But we know if conservatives have their way, friendly courts will enjoin the law, preventing the government from enforcing it, in the hope that the Supreme Court either throws it out before the election or runs out the clock so that it can't be implemented until it's too late. 
That's why, in my view, the biggest missing piece of the Democrats' democracy reform agenda is court reform. The judiciary is inherently undemocratic. And this judiciary, the one stacked with partisan Republican loyalists, despite decades of Democratic popular victories, has been selected precisely to block the popular will. H.R. 1 isn't exempt from that. And without embracing court reform, Democrats are setting themselves up to learn this lesson in a particularly painful way. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Brian Semmel. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.